That's a really difficult question to answer for a lot of places, but really easy question to answer for Stepping Out in Pink. It allows us to focus those philanthropic dollars on some of the more high-risk, high-yield, high-reward types of approaches. As a society, like on a larger scale, what kind of world are we leaving our children? Well, that is a big thing to think about. I'm Ken Cooper, and this is Around River City. It is right in the wheelhouse, though, of Dr. Porrick Kenny. Dr. Kenny works with Gunderson Medical Foundation. He's a breast cancer researcher. And spoiler alert, uh, he's really fun. And this is going to be a fascinating conversation. This is also the first of three episodes focusing on stepping out in pink and the good that it does right here in our community. When we come back, the good doctor will introduce himself. This is Around River City. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper, and this is episode one of our focus on stepping out in pink, which is happening on Saturday, September 11th this year. How about we get an introduction from my guest? Sure. I'm Porik Kenny. I'm the director of the Kabara Cancer Research Institute here at Gunderson Medical Foundation, located on the UW Lacrosse campus. And how long have you been here doing that? I've been here five and a half years now. Obviously, you came from somewhere else. You have the most beautiful accent. I, I've, I've come from a lot of places, uh, but I'm from Ireland originally. So I spent my first 20 years in Ireland, 21 years, I suppose, and uh, got my first degree there in biochemistry. And after that, I needed some further training to become a scientist. So I moved to London to get a PhD. Took about four years. After that, I went to San Francisco for Six more years, further training, lots and lots of school to get to, 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 to you know, get, get to, you know, be a, a researcher. After that, I moved to New York City and ran a lab, a breast cancer research lab in the Bronx for about eight more years, I think. And then in 2015, came to Gunderson to become the director of the Kabara Cancer Research Institute here. So I've been in a lot of places. La Crosse is, you know, a big town compared to the small village I grew up in in Ireland. But it's uh, been, been really nice to be here for the past many years now. My goodness, you've been to some of the marquee cities of the world. And here you... Here you live in La Crosse. You know, they've been great places to live, all of them, for, for several years at a time. But I think, you know, when it's time to, you know, set down roots and, you know, have some have kids or a child and, you know, think about what family life is going to be like, a place like La Crosse is a great place to, to have a family and bring up kids. Yeah. And, and you've got a son, right? That's right. Yep. Emmett, seven years old. Seven years old is a great age. It is. It's a lot of fun. So that is the gentleman that I'll be talking with on this episode of Around River City. And you can make sure to know whenever there's a new episode up by subscribing for free at AroundRiverCity.com. And when we come back, we'll get into the conversation with Dr. Porek Kenny on Around River City. Hey, thanks for joining the conversation here on Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. We are talking Step It Out in Pink on this episode with Dr. Porek Kenny. So let's get back to the conversation. You know, one of the things I've always been curious about is how a doctor chooses a specialty. Um, breast cancer, obviously, is your specialty, correct? That's right, yep. Um, how did that come to you? So I, I started my, my academic life as a biochemist. So biochemists are people who, um, you know, really are interested in how small things like proteins work and how genes interact and how, you know, 
all of those very, very fundamental micro microscopic molecular processes that make a, a cell or a person or you know how, how, how we, it makes us tick from, from day to day. So when, when I was trying to think of what I could really focus on for my career, I was trying to look at what are some of the huge problems that are still outstanding where people can make a big contribution and hopefully solve some problems. Cancer clearly 20 years was one of those problems and continues to be a problem today. So I was decided I was going to get my doctorate in cancer research and, and focus on that for my career. And at the time, I was looking at a few different areas, but breast cancer was one that really stuck out to me. You know, it's a big problem. Many, many women get breast cancer. At the time, it was, you know, a couple of new drugs like tamoxifen had come out five or six years earlier. Um, a drug called trastuzumab or Herceptin was, was kind of just on the horizon at that point. I don't think it had been widely approved. So clearly, it was an area where some knowledge had accrued. Uh, progress had been made, but there was a lot more work yet to be done. But some of the work that had already been done was really laying out a roadmap for what people like me could contribute over the next, you know, many years. And that's been a, a really interesting professional experience to, to follow that path for, for 20 years or so now. You really have to be a patient person, don't you, to do what you do? I mean, it must seem like glacial movement if you look at it day by day. It, it really it sometimes can be. So some of, some of the work really is glacial. You know, we've published studies, you know, in the past couple of years that have been brewing for more than eight years. So that's a long, long time, you know, as a percentage of anybody's life. You know, in, 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 a, in a job like mine where you often have trainees, you could rotate a couple of trainees through at various stages of a project like that. But these, you know, if you want to answer a big question, these ambitious studies take some time. And i am always been grateful for the strong support at the Gunderson Medical Foundation for the type of fundamental research we're doing to address these important questions because it gives us, you know, that little bit more space and that little bit more room to be ambitious to try to answer some of these outstanding questions, you know, in, in like things like hormone-dependent breast cancer growth, which is kind of tough problems to solve. How common are facilities like this? Uh, around the country and around the world? So most medical schools and, and, and many universities will all have research labs. So, you know, those... In, in, in a sense are, are very, very common. But the situation here at Gunderson, I think, is, is really very unique for a community-based hospital system to have some such strong focus in research sciences is pretty unusual, especially in a town the size of La Crosse. Is world-class too much to say? Uh, um, I, I, don't, I don't think world-class would be inaccurate. I think, you know, the, uh, the studies that we publish are read all around the world. Our, our findings do have implications um, for the treatment of, of cancer patients across the world, not, not just in the lacrosse community. But, you know, one, one of our great joys has been to work with the patients here in our community, especially for some of our genetic studies, so that we can really drill deeply into the, the molecular details of their tumors to understand what's going on with them. But then having helped them to be able to write up that information, put it out there in the medical literature so that people, you know, far away, even in, you know, different countries can look at that information when they have a patient that somehow seems similar to a patient we've had here and maybe use some of the information we've developed to guide treatment for that patient. So, you know, a lot of our work is focused on immediate benefits for patients and uh, but it's it's always in the back of our mind that it, the work we do is potentially much more important and, and wider reaching than just the patients we interact with here. Well, that must be, uh, I, I'm guessing that's why you became a, a researcher. I mean, to, to see that bigger picture, uh, you, you, you can help 
a hundred people here, which is wonderful, but also thousands and thousands across the world. I yeah, mean. I mean, it, it's it's true. But for for much of my career, let's say the first fifteen years or so, I was really you know spent much more time in the lab, focused on some of these you know more more microscopic details. Let's say trying to understand how a particular process works, and that's very rewarding in many ways. But one of the big transitions in my career w- when coming to Gunderson was the ability to do much more patient-focused research, which is possible in a setting like Gunderson, but much more challenging to do in many other places because you know here at Gunderson we've got you know a great team of oncologists but it's a small team of oncologists we've got a great team of pathologists but a small team of pathologists and we've got a couple of cancer researchers so everybody knows everybody else so you don't have to spend a lot of time trying to get a half hour on somebody's calendar like you would if you were at say Harvard Medical School or one of these other places and uh, by the same token if one of the oncologists wants to get something done or has a question they know exactly the right person to ask because there's a very short list of people to ask so people have been you know generally very very willing to involve us and um, you know get us involved in, in, in patient care and in doing the work that's very relevant for the patients and as a researcher having spent much of my time focused on issues that were important to patients but yet kind of far distant from patients it's been really rewarding to to you know bridge that gap much more efficiently here at Gunderson. I was going to ask about that I, I'm picturing you 15 the first 15 years of your career and I'm picturing a, a laboratory with so I picture petri dishes and now I'm picturing you with those things that were in petri dishes but in their natural environment a human being how is your perspective changed by bridging that gap? Well, I think I think really we've we've really understood in 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 you know in, in other ways um, that urgency can be a real factor when you're dealing with immediate patient specimens. So if you're, you know, much of the the research we've done in the past have used what we call breast cancer cell lines. So these are cells that have been taken out of a patient, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago and grown in culture dishes in, you know, labs like mine all over the world. And they're really, really useful tools for understanding how a particular kind of cancer behaves. But some of the work we've been able to do here at Gunderson is to get some of this these type of cells live from a patient, so directly from a surgical procedure with a patient to grow those in the lab. So rather than studying something, you know, that may be reflective of a process that took place in a patient in Michigan or somewhere 40 years ago, the cells, you know, that we are looking at in dishes here are the same cells that are growing in the bodies of some of our patients and really understanding that what we can learn from those types of experiments can, you know, feed some information back to the clinic pretty quickly and benefit these patients. And, you know, there's one study that really comes to mind where we were able to do that. We had a we had a patient with an unusual mutation in a breast tumor. We were able to get some live cells, grow them into dish. We had done some genetic studies. We had a, a pretty good idea about a drug that the patient might respond to. But it was pretty unorthodox because that drug had never really been used in breast cancer patients before. And for, for you know, millions and millions of extremely good reasons, there's a pretty high barrier to trying, you know, somewhat untested sure. drugs in, in patients, even if, if they've been tested and shown to be pretty safe in patients with other types of cancers. But because we were able to take the cells from that patient, grow them in addition to the lab, see, see how they live, see how they move, see how they divide, we were able to take the drug and add it to the dish of cells and see how the cells responded. And the, they responded really, really well. The cells basically just, you know, died within a couple of hours. And that was one useful piece of information, you know, that we 
were able to convey to our wow. clinical colleagues at Gunderson went to help them in making the decision about whether to try this or not. And that's a drug that the patient ended up being given and having a tremendous response to. So again, that's the kind of thing we can do in, in a setting like ours with, with philanthropic support, which is really, really essential. Um, it, it is pretty impressive. Well, it's just, uh, it, it, it's a little emotionally overwhelming when you think about that uh going from the the petri dish and what we think of as the sterile environment of a laboratory to possibly saving someone's life i mean do you think about that a lot yeah i i I do i think it's it's an enormous privilege uh, to be able to do that and to to be involved in in work with this kind of importance and kind of and far-reaching potential but yet immediate potential for for a real kind of identifiable human being in our community who's you know suffering from a pretty significant problem the the knowledge that people like us in a lab like ours can have an impact like that i think is is really very rewarding this is around river city i'm ken cooper check out aroundrivercity.com for lots of local usable information from fun events to job postings we'll talk some more about stepping out in pink with dr porrick kenny when we come back Welcome back to Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. This is the first of three episodes in which we are focusing on stepping out in pink and how it helps so many people right here in the lacrosse area. Let's get back into the conversation with Dr. Kenny as we talk about the cold, hard truth of how research gets done. Just to be blunt, uh, money. It uh, <laughs> that's an important part of the equation, isn't it? Yeah, m- money makes the world go round. There's there's no getting away from that. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think at Gunderson we've got very strong philanthropic support, which is really key via our foundation. A lot of the breast cancer work is supported by Stepping Out and Pink. But just to, to say first in general, you know how work like mine tends to be funded and supported elsewhere is you have a, a guy like me who gets an idea and you you write you know what's a, a grant or a research proposal. You know, in some cases that could be ten pages long. In some cases, it might need to be, you know, more than 100 pages long. You send that off to, you know, a funding body like the NIH um, or, or so, some other funding organization. They'll chew it over for three, four, five months, and then they'll, more than usual, you know, send you back a note to say, you know, thanks very much. This was, you know, <laughs> p- pretty interesting idea, but we found these flaws in it. Uh, maybe you should reconsider. And then you sit down, scratch your head some more, write another 100 pages, send it back to them, and they might or might not give you the some money to do that work you know at some point maybe more than a year often after you had that initial idea a lot of our work over the year has been funded like that we've managed to do some pretty important work in that way but when we're looking at the types of experiments that we've been talking about where there's a you know a real patient in the hospital with a real tumor you know typically in in our world it's a patient with metastatic breast cancer or or some other kind of metastatic cancer these patients don't have a long timeline often they are not going to benefit from a timeline where you know someone has to wait a year or more right. to figure out if to they get can get a few to bucks to, yeah. to, to, to do an experiment. So that's why the flexibility we have via the foundation and with Stepping Out in Pink really, really is critical to allow us to be nimble enough so that if my phone rings and uh, a doctor is on the phone talking about a patient and has a question, I want my answer to that person to be, oh yeah, for sure we can do that. Yep, okay. yep, let's, let's get started right now. Let me, let me call my team together and uh, we'll make a plan rather than, 
well, that sounds real interesting. I'm going to pull out my typewriter and start working out a 100-page grant application, and I'll get back to you in 18 months. That must take a lot of, uh, of the stress off for you, that, uh, the, cons- the knowing every day that you wake up that money will be there. Yep, that, that, that's really, really helpful. I mean, in, and important. In, it's very important because it allows us then to focus on some of these more long-term issues as well as the more short-term issues. We do secure research funding as well. I think I've had probably more than a million dollars of funding here at Gunderson over the past five years of external funding. And that, that's very important because it keeps the wolf from the door in so many other ways and allows us to focus those philanthropic dollars on some of the more high-risk, high-yield, high-reward types of approaches that are often, you know, not, not, not very frequently well supported by the more traditional funding streams. So it's a mix. Yeah, yeah. You know, really, by you helping local people in the community, they too then are helping people worldwide. I think that's kind of a cool thought. Yeah, I think that, that that's really, really amazing. Because um, you, you share your results, I would think. Oh, yeah. We, we've published probably around 70 papers in cancer research. And, and, you know, all of those describe our findings and, you know, provide suggestions and guidance for how, you know, some specific aspect of, of cancer could be treated or how a particular aspect of cancer works that, you know, may then provide information for somebody else to figure out how it should be treated. So I think, you know, we're the people in our community who've supported our work over the years should be very, very proud of that. And that brings us to the big event, Stepping Out in Pink, um, which I imagine is very important to you uh, as far as the, the funding and the, and the community involvement. Yeah, Stepping Out in Pink really is essential for enabling us to do what we do here on a, on a day-to-day basis. So it's, you know, one big day of the year in September. You know, it looks like to the community, but it's a, a ton of effort and planning from the folks at Gunderson in the, in the Medical Foundation and an amazing planning committee. So it's it's nearly a year-round effort to bring that one day to fruition. And what a day it really is. It's, you know, for some reason, it's almost always sunny. So it, um, well, it, it, it it's, it's really a fantastic day out and uh, great to see so many people. And for me, you know, one of, you know, my most treasured experiences of the year is uh, I usually volunteer uh, that morning early in the survivor tent. So we get to serve, you know, coffee and breakfast to three or four hundred breast cancer survivors wow. and members of their family. And that's, I know, did not know that. So it's, it's, it's a truly, truly humbling experience to see so many patients. And, you know, one of the, the, the really amazing things is, you know, they don't do it every year, but, you know, they, they ask all of the survivors to stand, but they don't ask them to all stand at the same time. So, you know, if you've been a breast cancer survivor for, you know, one year, this big bunch of people will stand up, you know, up to five years, another big bunch. But then, you know, they get up to 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and people are still standing up in smaller numbers. But I think it, it's really remarkable when you, when you look at some of those people who've been breast cancer survivors for a very, very long time. And think about the women who are standing up in those first groups who've been a breast cancer survivor for only a year or so. But the hope that they have when they see that even in the old days, 30 or 40 years ago, when treatments were pretty bad, you know, we still managed to have some of these people surviving a long time. And we know now that, you know, many, many, many of the people who are standing up in that first group are going to be with us for many, many years to come. And I think it's, it's really an amazing sight to see. It must give the people that stand up for the one-year group uh, a lot of hope 
to to see those people in the 25 30 year group yeah i mean i I think i think it's a great community building thing um you know for for those people because they get to know and meet more people who have been through whatever they've been going through and come out the other side and you see you meet people at all steps of their breast cancer journey and i'm sure that's very helpful for a lot of people as well if if they don't know so many people who've been through the same same story so i i want to speak maybe for the people that are somewhat cynical and you know we we do hear that you have to be careful about where you donate your money and that a lot of times the vast majority of the money goes to some place that you had no idea can you tell me a little bit about how my dollar that's contributed to stepping out in pink will be spent sure that's a really difficult question to answer for a lot of places but really easy question to answer for stepping out and pink so if you give a dollar to stepping out and pink it goes to stepping out and pink and it goes to research it doesn't go to you know um, it goes either to research or patient care because it's not just research that it supports so they provide um, you know some support for for mammograms for people who are uninsured or underinsured there's some additional support for patients who have economic hard times who, who may need you know some some additional things in the hospital that, that kind of thing but all of the dollars that go into that are donated to Stepping Out in Pink are used for a Stepping Out in Pink purpose, and I think that's very, very important. It's not like, you know, some of the the dollars that go to some larger nationally recognized cancer organizations that I'm not going to name and you know they do a lot of good work but when they run fundraisers in small commu- smaller communities like ours all of those dollars get sucked away from the community you know some of those end up being used for research and you know contributing to very very important work but those dollars that get sent out uh, get sliced and diced a few different ways and and skinned and sheared before Mm -hmm. they end up in the hand of a researcher like me and um, I think keeping that money local especially when we're, we're, we're blessed with having such good research facilities here really makes a lot of sense for our community because the immediate benefits flow and, you know, come through here for our, our neighbors and our colleagues and our families and our friends. And like we've discussed, you know, the, ultimately that the findings that we have get widely disseminated. So it, it has a dual purpose. Do you have a, any kind of a tangible example of, of something that you have or can do that wouldn't be possible without stepping out in pink? Um, let me think. So most of the genetic studies that we've done with our breast cancer patients have relied on funds from Stepping Out in Pink as well as some of our other donors. So, so these are situations where, you know, a patient clearly, you know, has advanced cancer. They've, there's something about their tumor that's suspicious to the oncologist that it's, it's not behaving like most of the other tumors have behaved in the past. But um, it's, it's really a situation where the types of tests that are routinely done in the hospital for cancer patients aren't really enough to address, uh, to, to provide an answer. So, you know, typically, you know, in, in, you know, in clinical testing, they might look at one gene or two genes or three genes. And, you know, here we can look at 25,000 genes, so, which is basically all of our genes. So yeah. if you want a, a, an answer to a comprehensive question, uh, this is the place to come to with that question and we can answer that. But that's not something that will ever be well I, I won't say never but currently is not supported for reimbursement by healthcare insurance companies and things like that so really the only way to get an answer to a question like that is you know in a research setting like ours and the only way to do that efficiently is with um, philanthropic dollars so the the breast cancer work in particular we've done um, has been supported um, you know quite well by stepping out in pink 
you know, I've heard you use the word genetics. It seems to me that I don't remember when when I was younger and they were telling, you know, we you'd hear about cancer and research and things that didn't seem like genetics was necessarily a part of that. Is that a fairly new element? I mean, I think on the on the medical side, there's been an appreciation for a long, long time back to the early part of the 20th century when people were looking down, you know, at, down microscopes at cancer cells. And it was pretty clear even at that level that the chromosomes of the cell, which is where all of the DNA is located, were abnormal in some of these cancers. And that was that was those were studies done even before people knew what DNA really was. And it was wow. the genetic material. So so there, there's a history there. So people have known that that the stuff that lives inside the nucleus of a cell is, is somehow disorganized in, in, or, or dysregulated in cancer. And then, you know, th- those studies kind of, you know, really died away for, for lack of good technology to advance them further. Through. So those discoveries were beyond their capability to investigate. Yeah, they, they, wow. they knew something was wrong, uh, or, you know, s- 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 yeah. something big was happening, but they just didn't have the tools to do that. So wow. a, a lot of that died away until the 1970s. And then uh, we, we got some, some good, better technology for, for studying DNA in, in those days. We got the ability to sequence it, which was, you know, which is basically figuring out what the, the letters are A's and C's and G's and T's and the, the order that they are along a piece of DNA. That, that only appeared in the 1970s, really, and was an incredibly expensive and laborious process but you know now in in 2021 you know we have a machine that i'm uh, here in the lab that can you know sequence we've sequenced more than two trillion letters of dna on that over the past <laughs> you know five years or so and it's sitting on a counter it's it's sitting on the counter it looks like a giant microwave oven basically yeah, I, don't, don't i wouldn't put a burger in it but I, you know yeah. it, it um it's it's a really really tremendously special instrument that was provided you know with philanthropic dollars you know for us um, for use for cancer research and it's it's been amazing to me having lived through a period at the early part of my career where the first human genome was sequenced back in about 2000 I remember it took that. it took you know billions of dollars and teams of people like me hundreds and hundreds of people like me working with instruments you know 20 times the size of the one we have filling entire barn-sized laboratories just to sequence the, the genome of one person. And, you know, we've sequenced a, an entire genome of, you know, a person here. Yeah, I won't say routinely, but it's we've done it, and it's within our capabilities to do it. So the, the speed of that advancement is really remarkable, and it allows us to do things here that were, you know, pretty much inconceivable five or ten years ago for, for individual patients on a pretty affordable um, cost line as well. So are you comfortable looking 20 years in the future? I mean, what do you, <laughs> you, 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 you paint a, a picture of, um, of optimism. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we can be really optimistic. I think all of that technology is advancing at a pace that I'm not even comfortable predicting. I've, I've tried that in the past and failed, and I always fail on the, on the uh, underambitious side because these things get faster and cheaper, more easy to use, more easily deployable. Well, we won't hold you to anything. There's nothing in writing. (laughs) But uh, are you optimistic? Yes. um, So so that's just on the technology side, which, you know, genuinely, I don't expect most of your listeners to care about because everybody, including me, really cares about the cancer patients. So so that's that's where we really need to consider optimism. Figuring out which boxes and which categories these patients can be can be assigned to or where their tumors can be assigned that's what really gives me tremendous hope that for for many many of these patients we'll be able to offer them something very very fundamentally different than the old school 
um, you know, more poisonous chemotherapies that, you know, have been in use and, you know, continue to be used in many cases, but to give them, to offer them up front something much more specific to treat them for the disease that they actually have, not the average disease that the average person tends to have. That seems like one of the biggest uh, paradigm shifts in all of cancer research, at least from my conversations with you, is that going from the generalized approach to the very specific Yep, that's, I, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's been a real mind shift, but I think building something that out in a, a situation like we have in Wisconsin, where we've got a population of, you know, five and a half, six million people spread over very widely dispersed geographic regions with, um, you know, so, some with large hospitals, some with smaller hospitals, you know, especially in one of these smaller hospitals, it's really tough if you have an oncologist, for, for an oncologist to be, you know, have all of the details of all of the cancers that they're expected to, to treat up to date and at their, uh, you know, at, at their beck and call. Whereas the ability to participate in this molecular tumor board offers these physicians and their patients from all across Wisconsin access really to a brain trust of some of the people who, who really think about this stuff from, from the time they get up in the morning to the time they go to sleep at night. And I think um, that's been really helpful in demonstrating that this stuff really does work very well and uh, also in encouraging insurance companies to, to reimburse for it. So much of... Uh what you've talked about, all of what you've talked about, is so dependent on that philanthropic help that you get here, uh, especially with uh, Stepping Out in Pink. The event is coming up in September. What's exciting for you? I know you talked about the day and, uh, and some of the events, but when you look out and see all the people that are a part of that, I've walked in it, my, my daughter has walked in it, and we don't have breast cancer in our family. Nobody that we know closely has, has had that but it's, it's fun. It's just fun to be a part of it, too. Yeah, it's an amazing day. It's, a, it's an amazing thing to participate in. I, I find it tremendously motivating to see the number of people we have in our community who are interested in supporting cancer research and believe that cancer research and breast cancer research in particular is very important. I, I don't just go by myself. My, my wife comes. My son comes. I bring all of my fellows from the lab and, and, and other staff members from the lab. So I think particularly for the trainees, it's enormously motivating because you know you can be in the situation like I was for the first 15 years of my life where you're you're staring down a microscope and you're studying something that to you is very very interesting but the broader relevance of which you know really you're not confronted with on a day-to-day basis and I think you know the the, the participating in something like stepping out in pink for a lot of my trainees has really allowed them to open their eyes and you know see the significance of the problems that they're you know wrestling with in the lab on a, a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis in, in an entirely different uh, context so so i love it for that reason too i wonder you know i was thinking about this earlier uh some of your trainees and some of those the people that are in the places where you were 20 years ago um what they'll be you doing 20 years from now Oh, it's frightening. I, I, amazingly good things. I mean, you know, I think about what, what, you know, the work that I got a doctorate for, you know, 22 years ago, something like that. You could probably do that work in an afternoon or a couple <laughs> seriously, you know, maybe, maybe a week or something like that. If you wanted to do it a few times and make sure you got it right, which okay. of course is always a good idea. But, you know, it took me three and a half years. Do you mind if I ask a personal question? Go ahead. You know, I have, uh, I have two adult ch- children. I have a daughter who's going to be 12. You have Emmett, who's seven. I would think he's going to grow up being, being very proud of you. Do you think about that? 
Uh, you know, I, I, I hope so. You know, he's, um, he's, he's, he's a wonderful kid. He's very curious. He's very inquisitive, um, you know, as am I and as is his mom. So I'm sure some of those things, you know, that you get them by nature and by nurture. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I'm, he's, he's growing up to be a great kid and we're very proud of him. And I'm sure um, he's, you know, with especially more recently with some of the work we've been doing with COVID, I've been on TV from time to time. Sometimes it's felt like every week. So, you know, he certainly has seen me getting quite a bit of exposure and I think that's been been cool for him to see because you know he sees me doing the hard work you know seven days a week practically for the past year and on some of those more challenging issues so i think you know he's seen even through young eyes um the hard work side and also the the communication side kids can be a good north star too right Yep, that's that's absolutely right. In in so many ways, I mean, for as a society, like a, on a larger scale, what kind of world are we leaving our children? As well as you know, the children we're individually raising and influencing ourselves. I mean, very important on all of those levels. Stepping out in pink happens Saturday, September 11th, and you can get all the information that you need at aroundrivercity.com and at steppingoutinpink.org. Got to say thanks to Dr. Kenny for the fascinating conversation. On the next episode of ARC, I'll talk with another Gunderson doctor, Leah Dietrich. I'll tell you right now, there's a lot more to her story than being a doctor. Subscribe to the podcast for free at aroundrivercity.com. And thanks for joining the conversation. I'm Ken Cooper.